Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. So in recent months, I've spent a lot of time discussing the significant learning loss students have experienced over the past year. And estimates suggest that the average student is a month or two behind in reading and several months behind in math. Those are big losses. But averages only tell part of the story. We also need to think about and eventually identify where the greatest losses are. Now, as was the case before the pandemic, race, unfortunately, has been a strong predictor of students' learning experiences. Why have fewer Black and Hispanic students returned to their classrooms for full-time in-person learning relative to white students? And what effect will this have on our nation's stubborn racial achievement gaps? Here to weigh in on those questions are Vlad Kogan and Chris Stewart. Vlad Kogan is an associate professor of political science at The Ohio State University, where he focuses on the intersection of politics and public policy in areas that include education and social policy. He's also the recent author of an AEI paper, What's Behind Racial Differences in Attitudes Towards School Reopening and What to Do About Them. Also joining us is Chris Stewart, who's the CEO of Brightbeam, an education advocacy network that oversees Education Post, Citizen Ed, and the Project Free Forever. Chris previously served as the Executive Director of the African American Leadership Forum and also served on the Minneapolis Public School Board of Education. Of course, podcast listeners may also know Chris as one of the Eight Black Hands podcast members. Vlad, Chris, welcome to the report card. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Appreciate being here. So we're going to be spending a good part of the show talking about the impact this past year has had on racial achievement gaps. But to set the stage, let's start a little bit earlier. Racial differences in educational achievement have been measured since at least the mid-60s when the Civil Rights Act commissioned the Coleman Report and discussed wealth earlier than that. Chris, uh, for folks who might be a little bit rusty on the history of American education, can you give us the two-minute overview of the progress or maybe lack of progress we've made in closing achievement gaps over the past 50 years. Sure, so you know, there's a long portion of American history that we saw a closing of the gap, a narrowing of the gap, even against conventional wisdom prior to uh, Brown versus Board of Education when we still had segregated schools. Little known fact is that a lot of the black schools with black educators prior to Brown versus Board were closing the gap on things like uh, high school graduation and completion of like 12 years of school. There were a lot of high schools that were breaking barriers with African-Americans. So the gap was closing, even though we, we didn't measure it in the same way that we measure gaps today. There would be some people who would tell you that integration and desegregation caused a lot of uh, closing of the gap over a period of years. What they won't tell you is that white NAEP data for a long period of time was flat. So it wasn't really closing the gap. It was just that Blacks were making gains because they were making gains in jobs. They were making gains in housing, like the world was changing. And so they were catching up. But uh, white achievement was flat for a good part of that time until into the 90s, which is when we saw saw gaps starting to grow again because white kids started to do a little bit better. But Black kids were catching up, but not as fast of a rate. And then we get into the No Child Left Behind era, an era where we really start measuring a lot. And we start paying a lot more attention to outcomes than just inputs. A little told fact uh, during that time is we made some gains there too. We saw saw some narrowing of the gap after we started paying attention closely to outcomes. Um, I think that's a little bit of the history. Now, of course, there's been some some periods where we've lost ground and we've gained ground. But the more that we have, uh, I call the reform era starting in 92, 
when we started seeing things like charter schools and standards and a really stronger focus on outcomes. In that reform era since 92, we have seen some notable, I think, gains for sure, but closing of the gap, uh, just not as fast as the rate as, as we would like. Yeah. And I mean, to look over the past, I don't know, 25 years, right? We'll get back uh, near 92. And there's been some closing of the gap. But as far as progress on the gap, I mean, it's begrudging. Wouldn't you say that's fair? I mean, it is. But I mean, the, the real notable sign that I think people should pay attention a lot to is that everybody has been gaining ground, though. I mean, when we talk about a gap, we're talking about the, the equalizing performance, but we're not saying that nobody's making progress. If you look at the, the trend line, you know, white kids are doing better. That's part of the gap is that white kids are starting to advance. I mean, it, there's probably in your lifetime a, a time that you can remember where a perfect 1600 was not possible. Like, you know, when you were taking SATs, like it, it seemed like out of the realm of possibility. And yeah. uh, kid, kids are getting that with some degree of regularity now, right? Like, um, I don't know. I shouldn't be able, I shouldn't say within your lifetime because I don't know how old you are. <laughs> so I don't want to call you out, but I don't know how far back you remember, but the idea that it would be as much of a norm as it is now for people to be hitting that top level is is probably changed over time. Sure. Okay. So putting a pin in overall achievement gaps for a minute, let's talk about how the pandemic might intersect with them. Um, and I think we need to start with differences in public opinion on the virus generally that we've seen in, in polling that has diverged across racial lines. Vlad, you've done some work on this. Can, can you give us a quick overview of how that uh, polling has shaped up and, and uh, maybe beginning early in the pandemic last spring? Yeah, and, and you know, before I do, let, let me just weigh in on the, on the achievement gap issue as well. So we were um, in the fall lucky enough to get access to some testing data in Ohio. So Ohio actually has fall testing in third grade in ELA, and they continued with those tests despite the pandemic, and about 80% of the students in, in Ohio, third graders, took that test. Um, and I think one of the most really depressing and, and shocking things that we saw was not only the, the, direct, you know, the, the overall impacts of the pandemic, so we were comparing students across years and test scores were down, uh, but those achievement hits, those achievement impacts were about 50 percent larger for black students in Ohio than for white students. So white student test scores were about, you know, were about a, a third of a, of a year behind compared to previous years. Black students were about half a year behind. And, you know, I think if we're talking about in the grand scheme of things, we have made some marginal gains, but, you know, negative impacts this large in such a short period of time, I think is just, just in, in, insane and incredible. Um, and I think very concerning. And, and some of that was linked to, um, to differences in which school districts reopened. So Ohio, we had districts that started off the year 100% in person and then other districts that really continued to be uh, fully online throughout really much of the year. So, so I, I think that's really useful to think about as well, right? That you know, this long trajectory is really being affected in really dramatic ways by COVID. Um, and I think part of that is access to schooling and, and of course, willingness to send kids to school. So you know, to, I think to your question, I think we have seen the response to the pandemic really polarized very, very early. So much of that polarization was across partisan lines and things that I think in a, in a sane world would not be partisan, like whether you should wear masks or not became partisan. I think interestingly enough, we also saw some, some differences in opinion emerge across racial lines. And early on, really as early as last May, 
we saw white parents much more eager um, and much more willing to send their kids back to school in person than parents of color. And that was true for African-American parents, Latino parents, but also, also Asian parents. We also saw very unequal impacts of the pandemic itself, right? So really as early as last April, in the very early weeks of the pandemic, we also saw that minority communities have been getting impacted in terms of health impacts, um, in terms of job impacts by the pandemic as well. So I think, you know, trying to untangle what's, what's causing what is, is really difficult, but I think really important to understand, you know, how people's experiences shape their attitudes and, and the long-term impacts of that on really comfort level and willingness to send kids back. Because I think if there's one thing that, that I'm concerned about, and one thing that I think is, should be at the very top of people's minds is, you know, if kids are not in person school, that's not going to be great for them. And if there's racial differences in who's going to school, I mean, the long-term consequences is going to be incredibly, incredibly worrying for us as a society, especially society that, that believes in, in equity and believes in, you know, an equality of opportunity. So Vlad, pushing on these racial differences in the public polling on attitudes towards uh, the virus generally, but also towards school reopening. I mean, when you see differences in by race, are these explained by other things like urbanicity or is it just politics or is it truly sort of a unique racial divide on top of those other factors? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's a complicated question. And so it has a complicated answer. And so, you know, when I first dove into this data, um, I think there was an emerging narrative that the reason why parents of color are concerned about in-person schooling is because they're just much more concerned about COVID because they have seen uh, loved ones, they've seen family members be impacted. Part of that is, you know, the industries they work in, right? Industries that stayed open and they had to work in person. Part of that is household structure, more likely to live in multifamily households. Part of that is, as you mentioned, you know, where they live in, in dense urban areas where at least last spring, right, that was the epicenter of the pandemic. And so part of what I wanted to untangle is really how much of attitudes about schools is driven by both people's previous experiences with COVID. Did they have family members, loved ones, close friends who were hospitalized or died? Um, do they themselves get COVID? Do they have one of these comorbidities that increases the risk of having a severe outcome if they got COVID? And we know that there's some racial differences in, in, in health as well for, for you know, a variety of troubling reasons. Aside from all these objective things, which is, you know, do you know somebody, uh, but also how do you feel? You know, how likely do you think you are to, to get hospitalized if you're infected? And we do see on all those measures, objective measures and just subjective fears, some racial differences. So people of color are much more likely to know somebody who was impacted, much more likely to worry about a severe outcome. But interestingly enough, you know, if you adjust for that using some fancy statistical methods, it explains very little of the variation in um, an opinion towards schools and very little of the variation in racial gaps in that opinion. So I think it became clear to me, much of my surprise, that it wasn't all these other things that, that affected people's exposure to the virus and potentially the consequences of that exposure. And there was something else going on. So Vlad, let me repeat back what I've heard about the racial achievement gaps. You're saying that there could be a lot of things that African-American and Hispanic folks have undergone that drove the differences. But when you controlled for those statistically, there were still race gaps evident in the opinions on whether students should return or not, apart from those competing explanations. Is that right? Yeah, so, so not, not racial achievement gaps, but racial attitudes towards, towards school reopening, right? That's, that's what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think of it as kind of a, an onion. And so when you peel back each layer, the question is, uh, do the racial gaps remain? And so, you know, the first layer is all these direct COVID impacts. 
you know, knowing having loved ones who, who were hospitalized or died, yourself having a high-risk condition. When you peel back that layer, the racial gaps are still there. So that's not what's driving these opinions. So then there was the remaining factors um, that, that seem to be much more important than kind of personal experiences or personal fears or personal concerns with the virus. Right. So Chris, you've been paying attention to what has been going on in our education system, and it's different in all kinds of places. But, you know, this, the general setup for this is, okay, we see some racial differences in where schools are open. We see racial differences in sort of likelihood to opt into schools when they are open. And you worry about achievement gaps. But the, the missing link is, is that assumption that, you know, if kids are out of school, it's going to be pretty harmful. I'm curious what you make of that link. I mean, do you think that the in-person um, schooling that a lot of students have missed out on fully remote or in hybrid is, you know, basically right, that that's going to be difficult for students to overcome? Or do you think it's overblown? Well, I think, you know, there are some bigger questions just around, you know, is this an opportunity for us to think about education differently? I mean, we are seeing the downsides. Yes, of course, there's worries about learning loss. There's, uh, you know, worries that we're losing ground and all that type of language. And I, I think that's all important. I am really um, kind of bothered by the, the what I call a data vacation that districts are using this as an opportunity to stop you know, doing assessments and stop keeping track of where students are. And I do predict that it's possible that a year or two from now, we have a massive remediation project on our hands, but only if we are lacking imagination right now. I mean, some of, some of the kids that we we're talking about went from bad in-person learning to bad remote learning. Right. Like it's not just a it's not just a zero sum game that just because it's remote or just because you're in person means that it has to be low quality uh, remote learning. So we can't take the breaks off of however schools have to educate right now. The, the focus on quality still needs to be there and you could do quality education remotely if you had to. And if it was like something that was a focus of yours. But it's just, we're not using any of these as opportunities to be creative. I do think many Black families, um, and you know, some of the research will bear this out, have been making other arrangements too that we're not paying enough attention to, right? Like when, when we think about these alternative ed arrangements that are being made, we tend to think about white families, but we don't really pay attention to the fact of it's happening within communities of color too, that it's not just all zero sum, either you're in person or you're not. Like lots of families are making different decisions about how they want to educate their kids. So I don't know if I would say that it's overblown, the in-person thing, because to be very honest with you, my first instinct in this was to say, maybe this is an opportunity for us to try some, some things differently, right? Like, you know, this is as crude as it might sound, this is, you know, like New Orleans uh, years ago was an inflect, there was an inflection point where you disrupted a lot of pathologies in the schools by, you know, because you had to, because there was an event that happened that made you rethink things and they came out the other end better. And hopefully this, this could be the same. Well, this is definitely an event uh, to, <laughs> to be sure. Yeah. And, you know, just to that point uh, on the last episode, we had Mike McShane on and he shared just numbers of, of parents being polled about whether they would like to do some sort of learning that's partially at, at home. And the numbers were just astounding from, from my perspective. North of 40% were like, yeah, I'd like to do some at home, even without the pandemic. So point taken. Vlad, in, in this paper that you wrote for AEI, where you pushed the numbers on student opening, you said that there's sort of a two-pronged issue here about the, the likelihood in the public opinion um, that diverges over racial lines about whether students are likely to be in person. 
Um, can you take us through those two prongs? So thinking about you know what explains uh, what explains the most the most amount of variation in opinions towards in-person learning, and in particular the racial gaps. And I think there's two things that really jump out. One is you know politics and partisanship. It, you know we, we know in this country that partisanship um, is pretty highly correlated with race and ethnicity, uh, and it turns out that that was a major driver of, of people's willingness to send their kids to school. And then two is actual access to in-person learning. So parents who lived in school districts or in schools that were offering some in-person learning were much more comfortable with the idea of sending the kids back than parents who were not. And it turns out that, you know, last fall when school districts reopened, there was definitely some big racial gaps. And, and it, it was disproportionately urban districts uh, serving students of color that stayed fully remote. Um, and so I think some of the public opinion differences we see are downstream consequences of those decisions and the messaging that accompanied those decisions. And so on top of that, there's this relationship that you mapped out about, well, it's, it's, it's not just these individual factors, but it's also institutional factors about what's going on in, uh, in, in people's own school districts, right? That's right. Not just their own school districts, but their own schools. Exactly. Right. Yes. So, so uh, parents whose, um, whose own school was at least partially open were much more willing to say that their, their own kid, uh, they would feel comfortable sending their own kids back. Um, and the nice thing about this data is it's pretty high frequency. So, you know, it, it was done every two weeks on average over the course of the fall. And you saw, I think, a really compelling relationship that not just, you know, cross-sectionally at a point in time did we see this relationship between whether your school was open and your comfort level with, with in-person learning, but really this dynamic relationship that when schools reopened, parents' opinions changed and they became much more comfortable with um, in-person schooling. And I think, you know, the, the data I looked at ended in March, but there's been some more recent polling that I think really bears us out further, that as more schools have reopened, we have seen um, big opinion shifts in, in comfort levels, particularly amongst parents of color. So that's interesting because, you know, you, you could conceive of the argument that, hey, you know, we've seen polling in areas and the polling sort of lines up with what districts are doing, which suggests that districts are actually pretty sensitive to what their their local populace wants, right? They're just, this is good governance. They understand what the locals want and they're following it. And what you're saying is, well, it may be more complicated than that. It may be actually that governance affects public opinion. So the causation might be, I mean, I won't say that it's wrong, but it sounds like it's certainly moving in both directions. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So, so you can look at this tight relationship between what people want and what policies they get and say, oh, government is listening. Or you can look at that and say, well, government makes decisions and then rationalizes those decisions and then parents, parents listen. Right. And so I think one of the most striking examples of this is a school board member in Northern Virginia who, you know, uh, on, a, on a Zoom call when par parents were clamoring for in-person learning said, you know, do you want your kid to die or do you want them to learn? Right. If I'm a parent and that's what I hear from my school district, that's certainly going to, you know, going to change my comfort level of in-person learning if this official who obviously has access to all the best information is telling me that the consequence of in-person learning could be my kid dying, right? We, we know from public opinion data that, that parents trust their teachers, they trust their principals, uh, they trust their superintendents. And so when those people are saying it's not safe, that's why we're staying closed, that moves public opinion and, and produces some of this observed relationship between what districts are doing and what parents think. Chris, as you've been listening to this conversation, you know, you have a bunch of different actors here. So you, you have, you know, these districts that are like, we're going to open, everybody get back. And you have other ones that are very, 
very worried and, and sort of timid on the return. And you also have the union actors and so forth. I mean, how do you assess the back and forth in this, especially as we're kind of getting towards the back end of the pandemic and it's really kind of winding down? I mean, you know, we've been tracking these and there's like 3% of districts now, four are are fully remote now. So we're really getting to the end of it. I mean, how, how do you just generally assess the this conversation that's gone on over the past year? Has it been more noise than signal? Or is it just the, the messiness of running schools during a pandemic and sort of understandable? I think I like that word messy because that's what I think it is. It's, just, it's actually just been very confusing and messy. It's been hard to know who the experts really are. Um, you have various authorities who have various levels of trust with the public who have said conflicting things, very conflicting things throughout time. So I think that, you know, if you're a layperson sitting at home trying to make sense of the world, you know, uh, you're hearing conflicting messages all over the place, which requires you then to lean on intuition, like to go with your gut. And my sense is I understand what Vlad is saying about what the research tells us about why people are doing what they do. But there isn't a part of me that is just thinking intuitively speaking, number one, to be black in America is to have lots of valid reason to distrust everybody. <laughs> so like just, you know, the history of being black gives you enough reason to distrust information, no matter where you're getting it from. And, you know, the fear that something might affect you more than others um, is real in many cases. The fact that you might be, li be lied to by your district or by your superintendent or um, by your teachers or by your government or by your CDC, it, any of that is possible. So I can imagine where it's just not easy. It's not clean to say why people are making the decisions that they make. I just can tell you in my own life, uh, I've been very happy that my kids can learn from home. Uh, I have my own family reasons for not rushing to get back into schools um, necessarily, you know, as like the end all be all. Our, our schools are partially open, but they, they've opened and they closed more than once. So which means, you know, students have went back and then they had to close again, did the close the schools again. Right. So, I mean, you, you go through that once or twice as a parent, you know, you change all the arrangements in your life uh, to, to, you know, align your work life and your, your home family schedule with the schedules of the districts. And then they change it on you again. It hasn't been clean in any way, shape or form. I don't blame parents for having confusion and for um, distrusting what they're being told. They're being told one day that, you know, it's six feet and another day it's nine feet. And, you know, another day that it doesn't matter if it's 600 feet, right, in terms of wearing a mask. They're being told on one day that, like, you know, kids can't um, be big transmitters of COVID. And then they're being told a couple of days later that, you know, 20% of the new cases are children. So I don't blame the lay people. I blame the authorities and experts and people in the field, journalists, um, CDC, you know, people at the CDC, uh, a president who basically seemed to insinuate that drinking bleach uh, might, you know, make it go away like magic or something like that. I mean, I don't know. Like, like, like that I was a low point. Chris. I don't that blame. Was a low point. There's sure. <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, we've had lots of low points just in terms of, you know, our lesser and more educated so-called experts have led us wrong multiple times, I think the focus should be on them, not on parents. Parents are actually, I think, acting extremely rationally based upon wherever they live and whatever they've got going on in their own homes, in their house with their kids. They're probably the most rational actors, I think, out of all the people you named. You named unions and superintendents and researchers and, and you know, I think 
we might be in a crisis of expertise, not a crisis of practical parenting. So looking forward to the beginning of next year, right? I mean, there's still a lot of questions. And Chris, as you said, we've been bouncing around as far as indicators, but I think that's certainly calming down over the past several months. And you can look at this, at least in terms of the influence of what districts are doing now and what that communicates to parents about next year as either a, a glass half full or a glass half empty. So, you know, on the one hand, there's uh, about half of districts in the United States, at least according to the data that we've been tracking, are fully open. You, you, they have an option for five-day-a-week instruction for kids, glass half full. Or you could say, well, half of them have at least some schools or grades closed for at least part of the week. Vlad, as you're looking towards, you know, the, the opportunity to change those things is, is sort of running out on this school year. How do you consider the odds of what that might do for reopening in the fall? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think first, you know, I, I want to be careful about, um, about you know, the conclusion that we draw from the data about who's open and who's closed, right? There are certainly districts that are open, but where a significant number of parents have not yet sent their kids back either part-time or full-time. And I think that's, you know, I, th I think that gap will shrink. I think those parents over time will become more comfortable. Uh, but I think we need, we need to be doing much more to get them comfortable and figure out, you know, what are their concerns or hesitations and what can we do to address those? So I think that's the first point. Uh, but to, to your second point, you know, I think what, what districts are doing now certainly matters, right? Um, if, you, if you see that your friends are sending the kids back to school and, and no one's brought COVID back to the, to the house and, and kids aren't um, getting you know, these really rare, severe cases, I think that will help build some confidence. But the one concerning thing is that, you know, there's some recent polling that asked parents, uh, you know, when do you think it'll be safe enough to send students back in person uh, and, and there's a significant number of people that are, at this point still think that fall is going to be too early. And whether their districts reopen or not, you know, I think by, by August or September, there'll be, you know, some, some parents that still feel that way. And I think the question is, you know, what can we do to convince them to send the kids back? You know, I, 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 I guess I'm, I'm more pessimistic about the best quality online learning option than maybe Chris is, but... Well, I just, you know, let me jump in on that just real quick. Number one to say that I think uh, the best and most hopeful outcome that we have seen is that people have found which kids do well with remote and which ones do better in person and which ones are better in small groups like pods and other arrangements. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Mike Machane's work on hybrid schooling, whatnot. So I think one of the best outcomes we've seen is that parent attitudes about what's good for their children has changed. And I think that's positive. In terms of the, the fall though, this is what I wanna say. I mean, we are still like, I can't believe that there's any degree of certainty that we know what's gonna happen in the fall, right? Like the idea that we, we don't hit a fourth wave or that we don't have something weird come up. We should have learned by now not to trust anything beyond three months or two or three months, right? Um, we still have other countries, in fact, that are facing not just fourth waves, but crazy fourth waves, which is requiring them to rethink everything that they had been planning for. Um, and because we have seen some schools open and close again, I could find it easy to believe almost any scenario for the fall, that we would be partially hybrid, that we would have some schools that have opened and closed again, or that we even possibly have a majority of kids back in regular school every day. But it's just not that clear to me that we have any 
justifiable basis of, of like knowledge, something that we know for sure that would tell us for sure what is, what's going to happen. I think Chris, you make a really good point uh, that, that goes back to Nat's question about what can districts be doing now uh, for the fall. And I think your point about, you know, how poorly executed some of the openings have been, how much disruption there's been to students going back and forth, you know, figuring out when is it really necessary to quarantine students and when can we continue as normal. I think that's a really, really important point, right? Because like, the worst thing districts can do is try a half-baked reopening that just makes everybody's life worse. And I think that more than anything else would really exacerbate some of the school hesitancy, right? Um, uh, you know, I think a bad reopening is probably worse than no reopening at all because of the, the long-term effects it will, it, will, it will have on people's and parents' confidence. Chris, you talked about this expertise gap, right? Like parents may be being far more rational than we might wanna give them credit for, giving the uh, inconsistency that we're seeing from sort of the experts in governing class. So again, if you wanna think about the fall and given the fact, and I take your point, given the fact that right now, worldwide cases are higher than they were at the, the peak in December, uh, you know, leads clearly to the fact that we aren't necessarily out of the woods on this. But let's let's say we uh, we we do have sort of a glide path towards the fall. Where mm-hmm. where would you push sort of the expert class to try and shore up some of that expertise gap that is not giving parents the confidence to to trust them or necessarily any one authority to guide them in these decision making in this decision making about returns. Yeah, I think that's an important question because I think there's a there's a large degree of misalignment amongst the different people that parents listen to. Like, you know, if you find a state where the governor and the local school board and superintendents are on the same page, uh, good for you. Like if you can find what state that is, you know, good job. Because, uh, you know, I, I think right now there's a lot of misalignment. So if, if they could start speaking with one voice with a little bit of confidence and enough resources to make parents feel confident. No, we've we've got this planned out. We've kind of figured it out. This is how it's going to go. The, go. This is the rollout and execute things well. I think they'll get the trust back of parents in those scenarios, but I don't see that happening in a lot of places. I do know that I care about some things aside from everything we're talking about right now. This is what I really care about. I care about them assessing where kids are and finding out what they're going to need to do when it comes time to start remediating the large scale losses that we're facing right now. And they could be doing that now. They don't have to wait until everybody's back in school and everything's normal and whatever. Again, they need to be doing a much better job with whatever uh, arrangements they have. If you're in person, whether you're in hybrid or remote, whatever. Right now, what I care about are uh, education officials knowing where our kids are and what they're going to need. And if they're planning for the fall, knowing how they're going to deliver. One of the things that COVID did, it exposed the weakness and how quick school districts can actually make changes or how planful they can be about making. I mean, listen, our, some of our schools, I don't know what it's like in your area. Some of our schools had to completely shut down and take like a month off just to figure out how they were going to do uh, remote learning in one of the the global technology capitals of the world in all of history, uh, world history, right? They had to like figure out. And then when they came back, they still didn't have it figured out, right? There were bugs and and problems and parents were complaining and it's been a hot mess just to be very real. If I can use a technical term, hot mess, I think is a technical term. It's the right one. Um, That's what it's been. Yeah. uh, That's what it's been. So if this is, uh, if, if history is prologue, if this is what we've had for the last year, um, good luck on finding like a competent, smart rollout in this fall that's going to gain the trust of parents if it doesn't come with some sort of 
pitch, some sort of like we've we've pulled aside, we've done our planning, we've thought about it. The governor, um, the the local officials, everybody, we've worked together, and this is the plan. This is how we're going to do it. It's going to be really hard to get that trust. And I think you know what's possible is people might come back in yeah. waves. You might have your pioneers, your people who do it first, and then they become settlers. And then you have your next group of people who want to be the next wave and say, oh, okay, well, this worked out okay for you guys, you know, three months in, and then another group come in another. And I'm not afraid of rolling, rolling comeback, like a rolling wave of comeback. That's fine with me. Like if, you know, first group feels really great about it, show, show us, show us the, the, the competence and then we'll come afterwards. Can I, can I just jump in, Chris, and ask you a question? Um, I, I completely agree with you on everything that you said, uh, especially the, the importance of having good data and, and knowing where students are. I think there's definitely a lot of folks who are sincere and, and motivated to do what's right for students. I worry, though, that there's also some interest groups involved who see this as an opportunity, right, in terms of testing, right? The groups that have never liked testing, that have never liked accountability, and, you know, this is their crisis that cannot go to waste. Let's use this as, a, as an effort to kill mm -hmm. accountability. Mm -hmm. and, and other things, right? Uh, you know, I think there's there's uh, some some people that actually kind of like the four day a week schooling and having Wednesdays to do planning, um, kind of like teaching from home where they don't have to deal with student misbehaviors. And, and my worry is that some of these interest groups are, I think, actively trying to exploit this crisis to, to shape policy um, that's good for, for them, but not necessarily good for students. And I'm just curious about, you know, whether you share, share that, that concern and, and what do you think that will do in this broader system, right? Because they are actively trying to influence public opinion, right? They're actively communicating to parents. They're actively trying to convince them to opt out of the state test. Um, so how should we think about all of those dynamics? Um, so they're doing their job. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And um, when a snake bites you, you don't say, why did you bite me? Because the snake will say, I'm a snake. <laughs> That's what snakes do, right? Um, so I, I appreciate their consistency. What I think is amazing about conservatives that's like driving me crazy right now and batty is that conservatives like discovered their absolute love for in-person public schools during this thing. Like suddenly, all of a sudden, it became the best thing in the world to get kids back in the schools. If you would have told me two years ago that we would come to a time where teachers unions were trying to keep public schools closed and conservatives were trying to get them open again, I would ask you what kind of peyote you were on, right? Like, like, the, like we're, we're living in the upside down, folks. We are literally in the upside down. Like conservatives, this, this newfound love conservatives have with open public schools in person as a public good uh, is bizarre to me, and I don't know what to make of it. Our big play right now is alternative education, um, making the most of the opportunity. If some are going to make the most of the opportunity to to pick on things like testing, and you know they they want you to shower the schools with 190 billion dollars of unrestricted money um, for half open schools and whatnot. If that's going to be their play, our play is to say no. That 190 million needs to go to parents having the power to choose what kind of educational arrangements they want now, and it's for the first time in probably 150 years of public education, uh, it's in doubt what all parents want necessarily. Not all parents actually believe that the default is the common good of the in-person public school. But my good friends on the right, my good conservative friends, boy, they have learned to love them some open mainstream public schools all of a sudden. I can't explain it. I wish one of you guys could help me explain this newfound love for open, straight up district public schools. So Vlad, for, for those conservatives, so warmly expecting uh, a, a, a broad return to in-person schooling in, in the fall and looking forward to it. 
What would you say to district leaders and folks in this expert class that Chris referred to uh, that they should take away from your analyses and should understand in trying to set up a return that's reliable, predictable, and sustainable? To, to Chris's point, you know, have um, have contingency plans that um, that are realistic that allow schools to stay open. Right? Don't have a quarantine procedure that. that it's going to cause schools to close every couple of weeks. I think that's going to be insanely disruptive. Um, I think two, you know, I, I, I again, I, I share Chris's optimism that hopefully parents have have learned about their kids, and so those who opt into online learning are going to be exactly the kids who are going to succeed in it. Um, but I think given our track record with things like online charter schools, I do worry about about how you know we, it's clear those options are going to be available. I do worry that um, more kids are going to take advantage of those options than is optimal. So I think districts should be really careful. There should be a lot of quality control. There should be a lot of monitoring on attendance. There should be a lot of monitoring and participation. And if we see kids who are, who are still online in the fall, but are not doing well, I think districts uh, should be willing to pull the plug and say, you know, you got to come back in person because this is not working for you. And I think states should be doing the same thing in terms of how they, how they fund education, right? So, you know, here in Ohio, we had a big scandal with our online charter schools and the state said, we're going to pay you only for hours that's, and, and work the students actually do. But we haven't done that during the pandemic with online schooling. I think that kind of a funding model that incentivizes active and engaged online learning is going to align incentives much better than, you know, do, do what you feel is right and we'll hope it works out. And my worry is that too many, too many states and too many districts right now are just kind of saying we're going to make everything available so everybody can do whatever they want and we'll hope that it will work well. And, and I think our track record with those models is not great. I, I actually just want to jump in on that real quick and say, that I don't think that there should be any higher or greater quality expectations of any of, of the new and emerging models of education. So first of all, virtual learning as we conceived it two years ago versus the mass model of now are not the same things. And what we've learned in this short period of time is what works for some students and what doesn't work for, for other students. So the, the debate has shifted and changed on virtual, but I don't think we should have any quality expectations that exceed the quality expectations for the actual mainline traditional school districts too. So it always, it's always interesting to me that when we talk about alternative ed models, we, we suddenly escalate the need for quality. But when we talk about the in-person model that's existed for 150 years, we actually don't have the same debate. So I, I would hate to see us strangle any of the money or the resources that take away options that parents have come to see that work for some of them. Not Nothing works for all but is actually working out better for some of them because I don't care what happens in the fall or next year. There are some parents that are not actually looking forward to coming back to the same thing. They, they've like learned under new arrangements that they, they prefer something different. Right. So that all makes sense. I want to, I want to bring it back to the racial achievement gaps that we talked about at the top of the show more heavily, because now we're talking about returning and there's these different things that may or may not happen, you know, and, and there's lots of dependencies with, with COVID and so forth. But Vlad, I'm interested in you. And then Chris, I'll ask you to close out on, on this. Um, if we think that the differences in in-person schooling that have been available and also opted into by race may have uh, exacerbated achievement gaps, how confident are you that if we sort of follow the patterns that we're seeing right now, that um, we will be busy closing those achievement gaps or whether they will still be um, being exacerbated by attendance patterns uh, in the fall. 
So I guess let me start with some of that Ohio data, take you back to the Ohio data. So again, in third grade, um, you know, in reading, we, said, we saw this year test scores that were on average about 0.2 standard deviations lower for African-American students, about 0.3 standard deviations lower. And there's also some big differences based on mode of learning. And, and those are, you know, those are huge numbers. So to put that in perspective, you know, annual growth in reading is about 0.6 standard deviations. I think we have very, very few policy interventions that have in the past um, allowed students to close gaps that large, right? I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think, you know, most of the typical interventions we see are really on the order of like a fourth to a fifth of that size. So it's going to take a lot of work, not just getting the students back in person, but then once they're in person, really investing um, in, in closing the gaps and uh, you really making up for some of this lost ground. And I worry, I worry about our ability to do that. And I worry about the political will to do that. So, you know, I think we have two things that we know work really well, time and true methods. One is more learning time. And two is personalized tutoring. And just this week, you know, Los Angeles said we want to extend the school year by 10 days. And the teachers union said no. And so they're not going to do it. So, you know, I, I, I think some of these things are going to get require sacrifices amongst adults that I don't think adults are going to be willing to give and or redirection of resources, you know, to hire tutors that again, I think um, some adults, current adults in districts are going to want to spend money on something else. And so I guess I'm, I'm concerned. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying we're not going to, it can't be done and we're not going to do it, but I, I do worry. And I think in some ways it's going to be an uphill battle to, to not just get the kids back, but once they're back, really, really undo some of the damage that we've seen happen during this really historic pandemic. Chris? Yeah, I think that's mostly right. I think, you know, even as we're assessing right now, virtual learning, remote learning, whatever you want to call it, and what's going on right now, we're not applying, you know, kind of pressure on local school districts to do well, like Los Angeles, you just mentioned Los Angeles. I mean, the difference between seat time and, and synchronous versus asynchronous learning is different in different districts and different states. And I think, you know, the degree that we want to say whether remote learning, for instance, is working or not, might have something to do with the local contracts, like how much time have they contracted with their educators to do. And I think that's one of the major power imbalances that is going to be, it's happening now during COVID, it'll be happening after COVID and happened before, is that what we expect of our educators, what we expect, what agreements we have with them um, is going to be very important because when we come back, however we come back, there's going to be a new agreement that's going to require a much bigger effort much bigger effort in terms of instructional time, instructional methods. Um, in this entire time that we're talking about this on this podcast right now, this entire that time that we're talking about it, um, we're not drilling down to one of the things that's the most impactful for student learning, especially in, in closing achievement gaps, and that's pedagogy and instructional quality and teachers teaching and learning. And, you know, so we can put whatever bells and whistles or technology that we want to any of this, but we're still going to have gaps no matter what, if we're putting bad teaching before kids of color or kids that we don't consider worthy of good teaching. Well, Vlad and Chris, we will definitely have a couple of years, maybe a couple of decades of hard work to dig out of this uh, tumultuous year. But thanks for coming on the report card and uh, talking to us about it. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Vlad Kogan and Chris Stewart. We'll include a link to Vlad's AEI paper in today's show notes. I'd also like to thank our producer, who makes this podcast possible, Matt Rice. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review to help other folks find the show. 
As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malthus.